Revolution and formed the government couldn't have done it without the women. And it was the women who, by insisting that the men come together for civilized conversations in the dinner parties of the new republic, helped keep the fragile new country from falling into fatal partisan discord. The women made the men behave. It's not easy to track down these stories, though we thankfully seem to have every grocery list the Founding Fathers ever wrote. Most of the women left no written traces. Fortunately, some of them, like Sarah Livingston Jay, sent letters home from travel abroad on their husband's diplomatic missions. And Eliza Pinckney, the mother of two founders, was left in charge of three plantations in South Carolina at the tender age of 16 and wrote to her father to keep him apprised of the business. Among her many accomplishments was the successful cultivation of indigo in South Carolina, which provided a source of income to the mother country that one historian of the era judged more important than the silver mines of Peru or Mexico to Spain. When Eliza Pinckney died, George Washington insisted on acting as a pallbearer at her funeral. As the mother of founders, Eliza takes us back to the time before the Revolution, to the early 1700s. Her contemporary in the North was the long-suffering Deborah Reed Franklin, Ben's wife. While he charmed Europe with his wit and wisdom, her management of the Postal Service and real estate ventures back in Philadelphia provided him with the money to enjoy the old world capitals. It was left to Deborah to wield her gun, protecting the Franklin House against an angry mob convinced that her husband had sold out on the Stamp Act. Benjamin Franklin essentially abandoned his wife for 16 of the last 17 years of their marriage, returning to America only when it became clear that he had to take over the business because, as he wrote to a friend, my wife, in whose hands I had left the care of my affairs, died. All heart, that Ben. Then there is the war, eight years of war. There, Martha Washington, shown as the great heroine, especially to George. First, there was her money, or her late husband's money. The widow Custis was well fixed indeed, and she came through for George over and over again, particularly during the dreadful winter at Valley Forge when soldiers were deserting by droves. She cajoled the troops, nursed their wounds, sewed them clothes, and kept them from decamping. She also protected the very attractive George from scandal, as he was prone to indiscretions like dancing the night away with Catherine Green, the wife of his fellow general, Nathaniel Green. It's possible, though, that the real heroine of that winter was the notorious Betsy Loring. She kept the British general, Sir William Howe, lustily occupied in Philadelphia when he could have marched on Valley Forge and wiped out the bedraggled Continental Army. Their affair was so notorious that it became the subject of popular doggerels like, Awake, awake, Sir Billy, there's forage in the plain, and leave your little filly and open the campaign. And Sir William he, snug as a flea, lay all this time a-snoring, nor dreamed of harm as he lay warm in bed with Mrs. Mling. It would be nice to think that Mrs. Loring acted out of patriotism, but in fact she sold her favors in exchange for a lucrative position for her husband in the British Army. Managing through the war proved a daunting task for all but the most stalwart of women. Take the case of Mercy Otis Warren. Her husband James was active in Massachusetts politics and friends with John Adams and the other Massachusetts delegates to the Continental Congresses. 
Had his wife been able to hold down the home front, he would have joined the band of brothers in Philadelphia as they struggled with independence and then government. But if he had, the Warrens would have gone bankrupt. Mercy might not have been a businesswoman, but as a writer and thinker, she became one of the great philosophers of independence. Her plays, poems, and articles, urged on by John and Samuel Adams, spurred revolutionary sentiment. In her private writings, she mused about the place of women and whether it was appropriate for them to venture, as she did, beyond the domestic sphere. In fact, women ventured into all kinds of spheres. They went with soldiers to camp. They served as spies. They organized boycotts of British goods. They raised money for the troops. They petitioned the government. As the daughters of liberty, they formed a formidable force. They defended their homesteads alone as their husbands hid out, marked men with a price on their heads. The generals on both sides of the Revolutionary War marveled at the strength of the women. George Washington wrote to poet Anna Stockton, you ladies are in the number of the best patriots America can boast. The British general, Lord Cornwallis, paid an even greater tribute. We may destroy all the men in America, and we shall still have all we can do to defeat the women. And all the while, the women were bearing and burying and rearing children. Then the war was finally over, and there was a country to raise— Martha Washington's special grace was called on once again to choreograph the odd job of first lady, finding a balance that was open and democratic enough to reflect revolutionary principles, but formal and regal enough to win the respect of needed European allies. Other women, like Catherine Green, whose husband the general died soon after the war, had to make their way in the world. She did it by helping Eli Whitney invent the cotton gin. When I first started learning about the women who influenced the Founding Fathers, I thought they might represent a unique generation in the way we've always been told that the men of the era were unique. After all, they lived at a time declaring independence and fighting a war for it, crafting a constitution, forming a new government, a time that will never be repeated. John Quincy Adams subscribed to the thesis that his mother's generation was unique when he complained that there were no modern women like her. Abigail, God lover, shot back that women might act frivolous and flighty, but only because men wanted them to. But as I got to know these women, reading their letters and their recipes, I've decided not to dress a whole head of cow, but hearty choke pie is delicious. I came to the conclusion that there is nothing unique about them. They did, with great hardship, courage, pluck, prayerfulness, sadness, joy, energy, and humor, what women do. They put one foot in front of the other in remarkable circumstances. They carried on. They are truly our founding mothers. Chapter 1, Before 1774, The Road to Revolution, Stirrings of Discontent When you hear of a family with two brothers who fought heroically in the Revolutionary War, served their state in high office, and emerged as key figures in the new American nation, don't you immediately think they must have had a remarkable mother? And so Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and Thomas Pinckney did. Today, Eliza Lucas Pinckney would be the subject of talk show gab fest and made-for-TV movies, a child prodigy turned into a celebrity. In the 18th century, she was seen as just a considerate young woman performing her duty with maybe a bit too much brain power for her own good. George Lucas brought his English wife and daughters to South Carolina in 1734 to claim three plantations left to him by his father. 
Before long, however, Lucas left for Antigua to rejoin his regiment in fighting the war against Spain, leaving his 16-year-old daughter in charge of all the properties, plus her ailing mother and toddler sister. The Lucas sons were at school in England. Can you imagine a 16-year-old girl today being handed those responsibilities? Eliza Lucas willingly took them on. Because she reported to her father on her management decisions and developed the habit of copying her letters, Eliza's writings are some of the few from colonial women that have survived. The South Carolina Low Country, where Eliza was left to fend for the family, was known for its abundance of rice and mosquitoes. Rice supported the plantation owners and their hundreds of slaves. Mosquitoes sent the owners into Charleston, then Charlestown, for summer months of social activities. The Wapu Plantation, the Lucas home, was only six miles from the city by water, 17 by land. Eliza was far too busy and far too interested in her agricultural experiments to enjoy the luxuries of the city during the planting months. The decision about where to live was entirely hers. Again, can you imagine leaving that kind of decision to a 16-year-old? As Eliza wrote to a friend in England in 1740, my papa and mama's great indulgence to me leaves it to me to choose our place of residence, either in town or country. She went on to describe her arduous life. I have the business of three plantations to transact, which requires much writing and more business and fatigue of other sorts than you can imagine. But least you should imagine it too burdensome to a girl at my early time of life, give me leave to answer you. I assure you, I think myself happy that I can be useful to so good a father, and by rising very early I find I can go through much business. And she did. Not only did she oversee the planting and harvesting of the crops on the plantations, but she also taught her sister and some of the slave children pursuing